Hey folks, this is Ian Foster, and this is If and When, a podcast where I talk to other creators about how and why they do their thing. To start, I'm talking to colleagues, friends, and veterans of the arts community at home here in Newfoundland and Labrador, Canada. These are not so much traditional interviews as they're a chat over coffee or something a little stronger. So come sit in and have a listen. Hey, hey, welcome back again to the podcast or welcome for the first time. If this is your first time listening, my name is Ian Foster. This is my podcast. I'm sitting next to a uh, bottom of coffee. Do you like how I phrase that? Not that the coffee was sitting next to me, but that I was next to the coffee. Uh, I haven't touched it yet because I don't want to have to uh, use post-production technology to slow down this intro. Uh, I'm talking fast enough as it is right now. Um, we are on tour at the moment through the magic of technology. You're hearing me speak this intro as if it were live, but we're probably driving a car and navigating somewhere around Newfoundland. Maybe we're filling up at a gas station in some small town while everyone in the place stares at you super awkwardly. Does that happen to you too? It happens to me. Anyway, we have dates across the island. They're all on the website, ianfoster.ca. You can go there. You can get tickets for most shows in advance. We would obviously love for you to do that. My guest on the show today is Fergus O'Byrne, legendary member of Ryan's Fancy, legendary member of himself. I mean, you've probably heard his name. He's been gigging as a solo artist for years and also working with Jim Payne. I remember Fergus coming into uh, schools when I was in school. He still does all of that stuff. And I was lucky enough to have Fergus play on a record of mine years ago. He played banjo on a song called Deep Dark Night on my Evening Light record. And I have such fond memories of that entire experience from the sort of nervous call to the guy who... Uh, you know, his reputation precedes him to say, would you like to come into my basement studio in my house and play banjo on a song that you haven't heard yet? And just his willingness to engage and be real. I remember he showed up, he wanted a cup of tea, that was it. And uh, uh, and only when, when we asked, of course, he didn't demand. And came down and, and played on the track. And uh, there was another song that we were debating having banjo on. He said, bring it up, I'll play on it if you use it pay me for it. If you don't use it, don't worry about it. And I just couldn't believe how, how cool he was and how giving he was of his, of his talents. And, uh, and he, and he remains so over the years, we've had so many great chats uh, in person and shared the stage a couple of times in, in different places. And so he was an obvious choice on my initial list of people I wanted to get in and talk to here. Uh, we have a great chat about Fergus's past, a bunch of stuff I didn't know about uh, his life um, growing up and early life here in Newfoundland. And then we get into um, a lot of great discussions about folk music and how it works. And I've been I've been spending a lot of time thinking about this. You'll hear me talk a bunch more in, in that section of the podcast because I think the idea of why a song survives or not is super fascinating. I heard Richard Thompson talk about this at a Folk Alliance event once where he, and I say this in the podcast, but he uses the phrase, I always go back to the old songs because the kind of mediocre verses were phased out years ago. And I love that. <laughs> I love it. It's just sort of how 
how time works, you know. Um, Fergus also says something about uh, a song called The Night Visiting Song, and he says when he always introduces it, um, he always says it's before Twitter when people could express themselves in length about how they felt about each other. I mean, come on. That's so, that's so true of all the music that we love, isn't it? So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Fergus. This is part one of two. Here we go. Fergus O'Byrne, I'm from Dublin, Ireland, brought up in Dublin, Ireland, left Dublin when I was 19 after, uh, you know, going through the usual school business and uh, spent a year working in, in Dublin at a job, um, import-export, uh, and came to Canada in 1967 uh, and ended up in Toronto, four years in Toronto. Started my musical career in Toronto. Before you go on, tell me, so import export. Yes, yeah. stop there. For Bills of lading. Okay. I was uh, I was in the export and um, I was a clerk in, a, in an office. But basically, what I was doing was preparing bills of lading for for export from Ireland and maybe import too. But anyway, uh, I had to fill out the bills of lading and write them out, and you know, certain certain things were were being shipped out. Say somebody was shipping a car somewhere on board of a boat somewhere. Uh, my job was to fill that out and, and then I would bring it down to the boat. So it's funny enough, when I was during that job, I met, you know, met some you know, various foreign captains and, uh, you know, I used to get, uh, in fact, we got some cigarettes, foreign cigarettes from them at the time because I smoked up till I was about 23 years old. Right. right. Socially, I didn't smoke very much, but, uh, you know, I was one of the, I tried it and, Gave it up. I just figured it was a, it was a fool's game. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so yeah, I was I was just working in an office. Uh, my uh, my intention, I think, was to be an accountant. Because um, my, my brother was articling at the time in in Dublin. He was my older brother, and I, my 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 arrival and my departure from Ireland is is a very sort of circuitous because uh, my father left Ireland before I did. <laughs> as did my mother and my three younger sisters. My father was a tool and die maker, and he, uh, he all his life was always talking about going, moving out, moving somewhere, Australia or, or uh, America or something like that. And, uh, you know, Ireland in, in the 1960s was in a pretty depressed state. And uh, so anyway, my mother, who didn't want to go anymore, obviously, the, 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 her side of the family were very sort of stay-at-home people, whereas all my, my father's brothers and stuff, they were kind of wanderers and, and stuff like that. Anyway, he, uh, he decided he was going to go to America and, and hook up with a long-lost brother that he hadn't been in touch with for, for years, and they, they started communicating again. And um, he ended up moving to uh, Baltimore and then to Detroit, about a year before I left. And so the plan was then six months later, my mother and the three young sisters would join them. And then a year, uh, six months later, when I was finished my work term that I was working at in this job, I don't know why I had to stay there for a year, but anyway, I, I, I did. And uh, the idea then was that I was going to move to Detroit. I was 19. And then, of course, uh, when my father and mother were there and communicating back and forward, you know, the whole thing of the Vietnam War sort of raised its ugly head. And the discussion was then, you know, if you come to Detroit, if you sort of get papers to come to America, 
<laughs> the very next day you'd be on a on a plane to Vietnam with mm. a uniform on and so decided then well look I'll move to Toronto and so I can commute back and forward see you on the weekends and stuff like that and and there, there was no no major plan just other than go to Toronto and start working and maybe go to night school maybe do this I I wasn't a great student my my uh, my whole focus in in school and when I was growing up was it was sports and music mm-hmm. and even though we didn't have music in school but outside of uh, I was played piano I played piano from the time I was seven years old mm-hmm. till, four, till I was 14 studied all that all the, you know the Royal Conservatory and all that stuff right and we're also sang in church choirs and were you were you uh, playing and gigging during this period in Dublin and then no in Dublin but you see at that time in Dublin uh, you know it's a a very fortuitous time in terms of the whole development of my musical career because that was right, if you remember, well, you wouldn't remember, but I, I remember, that was right at the beginning of the whole folk revolution. Joan Baez, Pete Seeger, our, uh, Woody Guthrie came into prominence. Uh, and then, of course, that sort of spun off into the Irish Clancy Brothers and the Dubliners and the Chieftains and all that stuff started to really complex because really when I was in Dublin you know in my teen years uh, a lot of us a lot of my buddies as well we sang we we if, when we got together at a party we sang you know sat around and sang mm-hmm. and primarily I I songs I used to learn were uh, in fact I still have the copy books at home uh, where I would uh, write out the lyrics of songs and the chords and there were Joan Baez songs uh, Pete Seeger songs uh, uh, Kingston Trio, I suppose, but primarily those protest and old folk songs from America. And then, of course, as I said, the Clancy Brothers, and then we started singing Irish songs, and I was playing a guitar- bit of guitar and a bit of mandolin at the time, and just going to parties and singing. That's, that continued when I went to Toronto. I was working in an office at a job I hated, but, uh, you know, doing what I was, I was doing, and, and just playing again at parties where Irish people were gathering. And uh, finally, somebody called me up and said, "I heard you played a mandolin." And I said, "Yeah." And this, he said, "Would you would you come down and 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 play along with me down at this Windsor House, Windsor Tavern downtown in Toronto?" I was living in Scarborough at the time. I so I said, "Well, I'll see now." And, and so as soon as I hung up, I called the Better Business Bureau, <laughs> and asked what kind of a place was it. Yeah, I know. Sort of my my uh, <laughs> cautious Irish ways. I love it. I love <clears throat> it. But anyway, I called him up when they said, that, "No, you know, it's it's kind of, you know, it's they didn't commit." Yeah. And my, as far as my memory goes, they didn't, really didn't commit to giving a, a giving it an A plus. I'm just trying to imagine calling most of the bars I've played over the years at Bettis Bitterbrews Business Bureau and see what they said. You know, <laughs> know that's yeah. a, that's amazing. I know when I think about it, I mean it's just just something that stuck in my mind over the years that I had actually <laughs> done this. Anyway, so I called them up and they said, "No, no, you." So I I went down anyway. <laughs> And uh, I love up- that. I'm just going to jump in and say this because I, I, I love those kind of stories. Like my my very first gig I ever booked here in town was the Rose Thistle. Right. And the reason was because I went into Music and L so green, you know, had never done anything other than maybe O'Reilly's open mic at this point yeah. and had gone in and talked to Janet Call, who was working at the time and said, how does one gig basically like I had no concept at all. I had no friends to guide me. And she said, well, try the spur or the rose and thistle they're the places that'll probably 
give you a gig if you can convince them you'll bring 20 friends out. Yeah, right. Realistically. Yeah. And I, I distinctly remember walking outside, looking across the street, because this was when Music and I was on Water Street, uh, at at the spur and then up the road at the rose. And I made a choice based on the rose looks slightly less shitty <laughs> The, the spur so let's start yeah. there it was yeah. very very basic grassroots yeah. you know yeah. yeah oh yeah no yeah i mean and the same thing when i went into windsor house you know it was a tavern and we were over in the corner sitting in a couple of chairs and just singing and people weren't i suppose they were paying attention to some degree but there was no sound system or anything and it wasn't a paying gig it was just a, a jam session oh. <clears throat> and then uh, more, a couple of more people came in over the weeks. I went down there and uh, turned out, well, one guy's, this guy's name was Tony Banjo. This way he was, we, Tony Donahue, I think was his name. Tony Banjo, he was called. And uh, he kind of drifted on. And then it was myself and Ralph, Ralph O'Brien and Gary Kavner. And uh, we sort of started getting a repertoire together. And that still, again, it was just just still sitting around singing and more and more people started coming though mm-hmm. to the to the uh, to the event to the Friday night and, and it turned out there was a Friday and a Saturday and then a Wednesday and uh, then we uh, we moved upstairs we pers- persuaded Jimmy McVeigh to let us upstairs because we couldn't hear ourselves downstairs and then uh, of course I'm not exactly sure how it worked out but he eventually ended up by putting tables and chairs up there and putting a system in a small you know, a couple of microphones and a couple of speakers. Mm-hmm. And uh, from then it went, you know, then it got to the point where I was working during the day, getting the subway home at night and missing my falling asleep in the subway and going to the end of the line and then having to get a cab back to where I was living. So finally, I, you know, 20 years old, what am I going to be at? Am I going to continue this routine or take the chance and I said and of course then the Irish Rovers were really sort of making a, making waves at the time and said no I'm going to quit her day job and see what happens right <laughs> and that uh, there was no again you know you think today in, in, in terms of people in the business in the music business in their teens and their they got management and they're getting this and they're getting that and they're looking for contracts and they're looking for I don't know what what you know the, all, they, they seem to have some, and anyway, seem, seem to need to have everything in a row before they actually commit to what they're doing. Uh, but, you know, those days it was just, you know, on a whim, just, well, no, I'll give this a try and see what happens. I find that really interesting. Um, I had this same feeling talking to Sandy, you know, when, when we were talking about gigging in St. John's in the 70s. And, and a lot of people of, I guess, that generation and, and maybe just the difference of, um, like what you're describing is you went out and gigged and then there were more gigs and you did those gigs. It's, it's not the, the industry with a capital I version of, okay, so we do a long tail nine month release on this record where there's a buzz campaign and all of this stuff, you know, like, is that something that existed at all for anybody no. back then? <clears throat> not, not that that I was aware of, mm. uh, you know, not that we were aware of as a band. We, we, uh, we pretty well managed everything ourselves. We we did all the publicity ourselves, whatever the publicity was. Of course, in those days, you didn't have Facebook, Twitter, or YouTube, any of that stuff. Um, you just contacted, wrote, or phoned up clubs and said, look, you know, we're on the go. Mainly in Toronto, because we had a steady gig at the Windsor House, and then we started <clears throat> we were playing in another place called the... Um, 
Mm, what's the name of it now? Upper Youngsters. I can't. Uh, it'll come back to me soon. But anyway, there were two places we used to play, and then uh, I, you know, a couple of Irish bars just outside of Toronto. We'd call them, and then word got around, and people were calling us to come. You know, want to come here? And, and it was all within uh, driving distance of Toronto. You know, you could drive within three, two or th- two hours, three hours to get to the gig and, and mm-hmm. do it and then come back again or whatever. Mm-hmm. And it just sort of developed from that. And then we got in for a little while, a very brief period of time, uh, the Sons of Aaron got involved with um, with uh, Les Weinstein, Weinstein, who was uh, the manager for the Rovers. Okay. And uh, it, it just never came to anything, you know. I, I'm not sure. And again, thinking back, I'm not quite sure how it, why it fizzled out. Uh, just maybe disagreements in in the way things were and the way they wanted us to go. We were more. Uh, we always considered ourselves more hardcore trad than say the Irish Rovers, and it's always continued that way. And then, on my direction in music, even though Ryan's Fancy were a commercial band. We we seem to be able to straddle the fence of being commercial and yet being more trad and hardcore trad than, say, the Irish Rovers. We Why were, do you think that is? Why were I we able just, to straddle uh, Because uh, the desire. I've, you know, I, I've always wanted to, uh, and anybody I've been associated with, uh, you know, including Jim Payne in particular, I uh, just always wanted to be uh, true to what I believed and what I wanted to sing. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously, within limits, you you do present material that sometimes, oh, God, do I have to sing this song again kind of thing. But most of the time, the songs I sing are songs that I really like and I like to perform. How did and, that evolve for you? Because um, you mentioned that you started off doing Joni Mitchell and or, like kind of what we would probably call now like the true capital F folk music of the of the sixties and stuff, and then that evolved into to more hardcore traditional music that eventually became Newfoundland traditional music. What what was that? Well, like? well, the thing is though, and when you you know you talk about the hardcore uh, music back in the sixties um, of the of you know general folk, but all of the music at that time was um, was a kind of a rebellion against what was going on in general in in music. Uh, you know, Joan Baez and Bob Dylan, Pete Seeger, they were all involved in the big protest movement of the 60s and protesting against big government and, and, and the, the way things were and the way things were expected to be. And uh, included in their material were not only uh, topical songs, but they were singing songs of history and protest of long times ago. Mm-hmm. And so those appealed to me. And I always say that uh, when I was in school, I hated history. Man, did I ever hate history because of the way it was taught to us. You know, it was all just a matter of, of uh, learning by rote the names of kings and queens and the dates they died and when they were born and, you know, the politicians and all that stuff. And just the idea of having to just, you know, rope, put that out again on a piece of paper that the that your teacher had told you to write down, learn this off, and reproduce it on the exam, and you get an A kind of thing. Totally. Facts and and figures instead of characters. And facts and figures, but also facts and figures about the upper echelon of society. Mm. And then when I started 
sort of delving and hearing and singing songs, folk music, uh, I said, this is what history is. This is what it's all about. This is about the common person and their struggle mm. and their joy and their sorrow. And uh, it just sort of evolved from that uh, into... Uh, into what I'm, what I do now, the type of songs I sing now, and also uh, at, at, I was very fortunate at, at when I was about fourteen or fifteen, I think it was, in in the same year, I I saw a concert by the Dubliners, great singers and songs, mm-hmm. and I also saw a uh, concert by a group called Hjoltori Kulen, who were the uh, precursor to. Um, to the chieftains and the tunes, the tunes that the, uh, you know, the, the jigs and the reels, I just was fascinated by them. I never ever did become a, a tune player, but just the, the, the I, 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 a love of the music came right there of, of the tunes. Mm. I just love to listen to traditional music tunes and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But the songs really fascinated me. So in the same year, I, 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 I was influenced by both sides of, 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 mu- of that traditional style of music. And, uh, <clears throat> and then because I was a singer, I gravitated towards the songs. And uh, so, yeah. And then, so anyway, after four years in Toronto and through Osmosis and a whole bunch of different bands back and forward, there was Sons of Aaron, O'Reilly's Men, the Blarney Stoners, and then Sullivan's Gypsies, and then... Ryan's fancy moved to Newfoundland. Right. And those were, I mean, the Dublin to Toronto trip and then the Toronto to St. John's are, I guess, the the three pivotal moves of your life. Yeah, really. Yeah. What yeah. was, what do you remember sort of the feelings of, you know, the night before you left for Toronto from Dublin or the night before Toronto to St. John's? What what, <laughs> what, what were you thinking at those times? You know? Um, Not really. I've just, you know, the, the only thing I about, the only thing I remember about Toronto was arriving in Toronto. Because when I left Ireland, I had a, 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 a tweed wool suit on. And I landed in Toronto on the 26th of August, 1967. Yeah. And it was a heat wave. It was just murders. I mean, I, I'd never experienced heat like it. Right. And my parents picked me up at the airport. And we drove down to Detroit from Toronto Airport. And... Uh, I remember on the way down the car, because there was no air conditioning in the car at the time, uh, just continuously hauling off layers of clothes just to cool off. But then I came back up to Toronto very shortly after that and again started going around looking for jobs. And that's what I remember about Toronto, going, doing job interviews and wearing a suit, this tweed suit, and it's just boiling and, you know, with the heat. But... Um, uh, it was an adventure, I guess. I just, um, I really didn't think too deeply about that. I just knew I was going to join my family and this was, this was the family was, was starting a new life in, in, uh, in North America. Right. And I had no, I, I knew, I mean, obviously I knew America and Canada, but I had no real notion of the difference of the, of, of the two countries in a way at the time, um, and I had, I, there were friends of my brothers in Toronto who, who sort of got me started in Toronto. I stayed with them for a few, for about a month or so, and then got, uh, you know, got in a, a, a room in, a, in somebody else's house and then got an apartment. And then we all moved in together. The whole band <laughs> seemed to be in the same house, eating 
off a plate of chips and stuff. What a were, timeless story, though. That, I've yeah, got bands who did that like two years ago. You know, that's to Toronto. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's the no, way. it's it's. Uh, you you do what you need to do to the Golden Nugget. That was the name of the place on Young Street. Because oh. <laughs> I remember now the Golden Nugget uh, eating chips triggers me because uh, we would go into the Golden Nugget at one point and we'd order one plate of chips for four of us. Right. Uh, and they, they'd give us a discount because we were working there that, that night as well. So, <laughs> so yeah, so uh, lots of subway rides and, and uh, you know, lots of... Uh, Lots of drink, I suppose, at the time, too. Right. It just, uh, you know, you're 19, 20, 21 years old. You're just footloose and fancy free. and Totally. Living the good life of starving to death and singing songs. <laughs> and how old were you when you came to St. John's? <clears throat> I was 23. Okay. So 23. still, I mean, still young. I, I could definitely, uh, I mean, choices you make at 19 or 20, like you're saying, is you, yeah. you almost don't, looking back, that would seem a probably a much bigger deal to just pick up from Dublin and move to Toronto. But when you're 19 or 20, that's easy, easier to do. Was it, was it similar moving from Toronto to St. John's? It was more planned in that, uh, we had, uh, as I said, finally, um, we had ended up in a band called Sullivan's Gypsies through various, uh, like Dermot, uh, joined Sons of Erin, uh, a little after, uh, myself and Den- myself and Gary and Ralph, and then when Dermot joined, uh, you know, just things just disintegrated. It wasn't because Dermot joined; it was just things disintegrated as a band, as things as as bands do. And so myself and Dermot and Gary formed a band called O'Reilly's Men. And then we met up with uh, Don Sullivan, but Dermot didn't want to be. Uh, Dermot wanted to go to Montreal for some reason, so he ended up going to Montreal and worked with a band there for a couple of months. And myself and Gary and Don Sullivan formed the core of Sullivan's Gypsies. Dennis, in the meantime, had come over to join the Sons of Heron. He eventually sort of swung around being in, to being in uh, Sullivan's Gypsies, as did Dermot. So Sullivan's Gypsies was a five-piece band. We toured uh, Newfoundland a couple of times back in six, late 69, early 70. And, uh, but again, it was just, uh, you know crazy times and crazy bands and mm-hmm. and that sort of fell apart but the core of the music within that band was myself and Dennis and Dermot and uh, around the uh, late 70s we started thinking you know this is just not working out and uh, I'm, I'm not sure who of us, of us it was suggested oh I know what because I met we met a guy in 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 the Strand Lounge he was a prof at the university and just talking about, you know, the, the craziness of it all. And uh, he uh, suggested at the time that the possibility that we could go to university in St. John's mm. uh, as mature students, um, because I didn't have the qualification to go to university. But mm. because I was over 21, I, I, would be, uh, I would be accepted as a mature student, as would Dermot and as with Dennis. So again, going, we went back to Toronto and through discussion with them, between the three of us, we said, look, let's go to, we moved to Newfoundland because again, the music was really well known here. You know, not, not that we were known, but the music was familiar to people in St. John's, the Strand Lounge. And, you know, I remember the first time we played as Sullivan's Gypsies even in the Strand Lounge. You know, we, we were booked in for a week and the first two nights it was I don't think there were very many around, but by Wednesday, word had gotten round 
place was packed and people were up on the tables and singing along and you know I was just you know how do these people know all this all this material mm. and um, so I, I very quickly started delving into the background because I knew nothing about Newfoundland mm-hmm. at the time and um, so anyway we we made the decision to move to Newfoundland, go to university, put ourselves through school and see what happens. Mm. And then all of a sudden, within a year, we were picked up by Jack Kellum to do this uh, national television show um, exploring the culture of Newfoundland through our eyes, uh, you know, through the eyes of three Irishmen travelling around and meeting local musicians. And that was, you know, that was the beginning of Ryan's Fancy. So wow. we ended up really, as much as anything, being a TV band at the time, which is, you know, quite interesting at the time when you think of it. It was just, I had no idea that we were going to end up like that. We just thought we'd put ourselves through school. I was going to be, um, I, may, I thought I was going to study folklore at the time. And I'd know, you know, went into university, did first year. And just I saw that you you've graduated with a English, or education degree. I eventually ended up with an education degree. Yeah, back okay. I, I but it was a long time afterwards. After after a year and a half at uh, at the uh, at university, we again we just had to quit university because things life was so busy with the band and stuff like that. So I eventually, when the band dis- disbanded in '83, uh, myself, my wife uh, took off for a year. She wanted a she always wanted to go to Greece. And so the opportunity arose that the band was finished. Uh, we had the time. She quit her teaching job. We took off and lived in Greece for a year. Wow, cool. Oh, yeah. How and, was that? Oh, just best thing ever. <laughs> it was just, well, we, we what we did was we, we flew to, we had no plan except to get to Greece. We flew to London, uh, beat around London and down the south coast, went over to Dorset and just hung out for about two or three weeks there with just backpacks. And then we went, made our way over to France, made our way down through France, uh, got to Lyon. And the idea was then to go from Lyon to uh, down through Italy to Brindisi and across by boat. And Irene at the time, uh, you know, I've had enough of boats. I really don't want to do another boat thing. So we talked about it, and we said, we could go to Yugoslavia. We could make our way down to Yugoslavia. So we went to a consulate in in, uh, in Lyon, and uh, yeah, they gave us two week a two week pass for to stay in Yugoslavia. That was when Tito. That was before yeah. before you know Yugoslavia broke up and it was still communist. And uh, so we went into Belgrade, uh, Belgrade, and uh, spent a week there and a week in Skopje. And then went on down by train through, on into Greece, into Thessaloniki. Eventually made our way down and lived in Crete for eight months. Wow, amazing. For We were gone a whole year. Yeah. And it was just, I mean, it was, and never any plans. We would, we would get up in the morning and, you know, if we liked the place where we were, we'd stay there. And if we didn't, we'd time to move on. We'd pack up and we'd head off and walk. We walked all the time. We, we didn't, you know, we traveled a bit by bus, but... When we were in Greece, we were walking 25, 30 kilometers a day at right. times. And if we ended up in the village at night, we'd look for a room and hang out there for another little while and move on to the next place. Amazing. That so, was great. It so was, during was, this time, I presume music was a, 
you know, you were probably still on your mind in an emotional, personal way, but I assume you weren't, you, there was no uh, designs to be making a career of it. You no. Know, you were living abroad. You living were abroad and tr- just trying to figure out what I was going to do with the rest of my life, really, in terms of career-wise and stuff. I had a mandolin with me, brought a mandolin with me, but uh, on many occasions we would leave everything in a hotel that we were staying at in, in Araklion. Mm-hmm. And take off for two or three weeks with just a really light light backpacks, right. and we we'd no problems leaving the stuff behind the counter at the hotel. They'd look after it for us till we came back. Right. Wow. <laughs> and um, yeah, so I had no uh, no no real major plans. I I didn't know what I was going to do. And so when when did that shift come? Was it during uh, that it was trip? Just or? The, the, well, the, the the shift came actually because I came back with the idea of going back to university and doing a, an education degree. Mm. And that's what I did. Right. And again, my intent was to go into the school system. Primarily what I wanted to do was become a music teacher because I had this idea I'd really like to bring folk music into schools. Mm-hmm. And if I was <clears throat> if I was teaching in a school as the music teacher, I could concentrate on, on teaching kids uh, uh, the importance of folk music. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I went to the music school here in Mon and they, uh, they wouldn't accept me because I wasn't qualified to be a, a music teacher. I would, have had to, I would have had to study. What I was told, I would have to go back and study piano for about two or three years to, to really hone my skills again. Right. And I said, well, gee, you know, that's, I'm, I was in my mid-30s then. I said, I really don't want to be at that. It's always and frustrating, too, because it's, 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 you're being told you're going to spend two or three years doing this thing that not only do you not want to do, but probably holds very little relevance to the final goal of what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah. And you're like, well, why? It's like the thing we used to feel when we were in high school learning algebra, where the teacher was trying to make a case for why this would be valuable yes. to you outside high school and yeah. often failing for most yeah. people. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And yeah, so then I said, well, what about my voice? I'm a singer, primarily a singer. And I said, well, yes, but you'll have to train, you'll have to train your voice and change your style. Of- I th- <laughs> I've been singing professionally for, you know, 13, 14 years. You know, you want me to change? And, uh, you know, I, at the time, I, you know, when I think back at it, obviously, yes, I, I would have had to. And I probably would have enjoyed uh, being, uh, training my voice to, to sing classical uh i probably do have the voice for it but um so anyway i I just i couldn't see doing three years of that before i'd actually even start my studies Mm -hmm. so i i fortunately i met a guy by the name of brian roberts who was the liaison between the school of music and the school of education Uh, i'm not quite sure what his position was but i know he liaised between the two and he advised me to look do a do a regular degree, uh, primary and elementary education, but take as many music ed courses as you can. And so what I ended up doing then was a, I did a uh, that that primary elementary degree with a concentration that that was the way they worded at the time, concentration in music and French. So I did all the music ed courses. I did all the Kodai and all that method teaching of, of music. And I also did uh, six or eight courses in French. Mm. So when I did got a, get a job, <clears throat> when I, I graduated in 87. My first teaching job was down in uh, Terenceville, mm. grade four. And I was teaching a bit of French. And also I was doing a bit of music with the kids. 
And uh, then I came back into town because, you know, Irene and, and Fergus was just born then, my son. And uh, we really didn't want to stay out. I, I, I had the notion that I go to Terenceville and, you know, really get into the folklore of the whole area and stuff like that. But it didn't really work out like that. So then we had a place here in town anyway, so we needed to come back in. And I said, well, we'll go back in. We'll One of us will get a job because Irene was a teacher as well. Mm-hmm. And so I said, well, I should... I, Maybe I should get a job, you know, people will know me from Ryan's Fancy and this and that and the other thing. But I never ever did get a full-time job. I did a lot of substituting. But where I was substituting, I was probably, at the time, the most demanded music substitute teacher around. Oh, really? <laughs> you know, which was a funny thing because, you know, I, I didn't have a background in band or... or any. I, could, I mean, I knew how to read music, but I certainly didn't have a band background. And uh, but because of my reputation as a singer and wherever I went, whatever school I went into as a substitute teacher, regardless of what the subject was, I generally ended up with my banjo toe. <laughs> and I still have people come up to me and they say, oh, yeah, I remember you, you were in my school in 1995. You brought your banjo in. And you, yeah. You know, and, and people just, you know. Well, see, one of the one of the earliest times I remember seeing you perform um, was I was in, I guess it was right out of high school and I was working for the English as a Second Language Department at Memorial. Right. And you and Jim came in oh, and yeah. did, did a workshop yeah. for the for those students, yeah. you know, who were from all over the world. Yeah. And you were doing a workshop in, you know, Newfoundland traditional music and what's involved and, and all that stuff. And, and I know as well, you do tons of tours I guess annually around the island yeah. through uh, some arts <clears throat> NL programs and different things, and it's just so interesting to hear you talk about um, starting off with the idea of bringing music via like an education degree where you'd be a teacher in a school. Because flashing forward to now, on my knowledge of you, you you don't work as a teacher, but you do that job. You yes, do go around yeah. the island. That is part of what you do every yeah. year, right? Yeah, and, and it's cool. a funny thing because that all started really my. You know, I was doing substituting. Then I, uh, Irene was 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 teaching in. Um, she had taught in Bonavista. Um, this would be even before we when we kind of first met. Uh, she had asked me to come in and do a presentation to her students, uh, way way back, and that kind of stuck with me because it worked so well. And uh, she had done up a whole bunch of stuff, you know. She was a great teacher, uh, and she had done a, a whole bunch of stuff with the kids before I came in, so they were all primed. So it really struck me that this was a way of of of, of getting at, at at children, getting two children, and so that just continued. And then I started uh, touring schools of my own, especially around St Patrick's Day. I put together a show, uh, Time with St Patrick. And I would show slides of Ireland and I was doing a connection between Newfoundland and Ireland and just the similarities. And that's one thing leads to another with that. You just sort of develop. And uh, uh, I did what I did do, though, um, at the time with the with the time for St. Patrick's show was that I did talk to several principals about the idea. And uh, talked through with them the need for uh keeping close to the curriculum as possible. And even more so now, you, you, you know, you can't do anything in schools now unless it's curriculum-based. Mm-hmm. You know, you just can't sort of walk in and say, I'm going to present and mm-hmm. this is what I do and sort of accept me as I am. Mm-hmm. It's got to be within the system. 
and and rightly so. So uh, yeah, so uh, one thing led to another. I was substituting, substituting, and uh, just I got so busy with music again that I finally said, look, I I can't even substitute anymore. I gotta be. I'm on the road. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. And so I swung back full time music again. Right. But as you said, a lot of my a lot of my career is based on uh, on not only schoolwork, but also this uh, thing that I've done for the last 18 years, this Young Folk at the Hall thing that I developed, a project. Mm-hmm. And again, it's all dealing with uh, music, folk music and young kids. I'm always saying I'm, I'm my mission in life is to bring kids over to the dark side of folk music. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the end of part one. Tune in next Thursday for part two of my conversation with Fergus O'Byrne. If you're enjoying this podcast, there are numerous ways you can support it. You can subscribe to it, like it or rate it on the podcast app of your choice. Share it with friends on social media or just e-transfer me a check for $4 million. I'm kidding about that last part. Okay, see you next time.